This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here once again. We are not at the WFHB studios. It's COVID fever time, as we all know. We're in an informal studio once again, my garage office. And our guest, thanks to Zoom, is Henry Leck, a music man who's now a painter. Henry, thanks for being on Big Talk. It's my pleasure, Michael. Great to chat with you. Henry has recently had an art exhibition at the Bloomington Arts Alliance Gallery over in the College Mall. Painting is a new passion of his. Last couple of years, before that, he was a man of music all over the world. You were most specifically the founder of the Indianapolis Children's Choir way back in 1986. What made you switch from music to now pictures on a canvas? <laughs> well, the primary reason is that I retired from the Butler University as a professor about five years ago, and I retired from the Indianapolis Children's Choir about three and a half years ago. Upon my retirement, I, my wife and I had a home built in Bloomington, and we moved here uh, because this is where my family most of my family is. My sister, Glorianne, is a resident here in the city. And my daughter, Anya Steele, teaches at Bloomington South High School. My son-in-law, Aaron Steele, is a realtor with F.C. Tucker. Mm -hmm. And I have two grandchildren that are in town. I also have another daughter in Cincinnati and, and her family. But uh, most of my family is in Bloomington, so we moved here to retire. Upon retirement, I still continue to conduct um, actively around the world. I uh, been doing lots of conducting. However, when I retired, I've been able to follow a passion that I wished I was able to follow my whole life, and that is to to do art or paint. I've never had a never had had a formal art course of any sort because I was always too busy getting ready to go to college or building and and sustaining a, a music career. Uh, but upon retirement, I signed up for a course at Ivy Tech and went to Monday night classes. My sister-in-law, Susan Sevastic, and I started painting sort of about the same time. And uh, then I, I joined a group called the Upland Plein Air Painters, and we'd go out and paint every Tuesday when the weather's permissible. And then I decided to become active in the Brown County Arts Guild and the Brown County Arts Gallery. And I've taken a number of workshops there, some with Pam Newell, and um, there's quite a collection of artists and artwork in New Harmony in the spring. So uh -huh. I've taken a couple of courses down there. And in fact, right now I'm taking two courses online. So it's accumulated to my becoming a painter, not a great painter, but an okay painter. And <laughs> with that, I've been grateful to uh, have people share those paintings. I, I'm really not eager to sell them, but when you start accumulating them all over the house, and <laughs> well, then it's best to move them on. So actually, currently, there's, um, when the mall opens up again, Artsbeat, the uh, Art Alliance place at the mall is going to be open again, and I think I have about 12 or 13 paintings hanging there. I recently did a, a one-month show at La Vie en Rose, the French cafe that's, that's near Blooming Foods. 
I'm doing a lot of painting and loving every bit of it. Now, this kills me. Here you are your entire life being involved in art, yet still feeling a bit frustrated that you weren't doing another art. <laughs> that's, that's true. And, you know, even within the field of music, uh, I started out singing and playing the baritone horn in a band school. And then when I went to college, I took on the cello. So I had a voice and cello major. And then my first job teaching in Wisconsin was teaching choir and orchestra. But then I moved to Colorado and for quite a few years, I taught orchestra only. And then when I moved back to Indianapolis, I was uh, assistant conductor of the Indianapolis Symphonic Choir, did some church choir music. And it wasn't until I was 40 years old in 1986 that uh, I discovered how incredibly artistic young singers could be. So that's when I formed the Indianapolis Children's Choir. And I conducted that for 30 years. There was a neat little article about you in Nouveau magazine. <laughs> and it was written by a young woman. Well, at the time, she was a young woman. She was 13 years old in 1986. And she gives the history of how you started the Indianapolis Children's Choir. Now, uh, as she said, you were the music director at the Universalist Unitarian Church. That was on 43rd Street in Indianapolis. Somehow you learned about the Chicago Children's Choir, so you went up to see it. This woman writes, and I quote from her, what he witnessed changed his life. Boy, that's an accurate statement. I, I um, haven't thought about that for a while. When I was the choir director at this Unitarian Church, I got this letter in the mail from the Chicago Children's Choir asking if we would, they were invited to come down and sing for a regional convention in Indianapolis. Would we be willing to pay for their busing and host them uh, at the church? And I said, well, I think so, but I don't really know much about you. Can I, I used, I used to go up and buy music in Chicago at Carl Fisher when there was- Good old Carl Fisher on Wabash Avenue. Yeah, that's right. So I said, well, why don't I just stop by? So I'm driving around in the south part of Chicago near Hyde Park, and it was, I got lost in a really rough neighborhood. I thought, yeah. I'm never gonna survive this. And finally, I found that it was the, at rehearsing at the Unitarian Church there. and. So I got out of my car and I wasn't sure I might even be mugged getting into the church. I walked in and some of these same kids that looked so rough followed me into the church, sat down, and before I knew it, they were singing Rayfon Williams' Lyndon Lee, most incredibly. And then I learned that for these kids, the children's choir there became a ticket for them to get out of poverty, to get out huh. of the ghetto. And I thought, this is remarkable. I can't believe what, what their sounds are like, but more than that, what it's accomplishing. And so we did host them. They came to Indianapolis. They sang at the convention. They got a standing ovation. And after they left, I was sort of stunned. And I thought, well, in Indianapolis, we have some good school choirs. We have some good church choirs. But there was nothing in the city that could draw kids from every neighborhood, from every social, racial, economic background draw them together into one and become an artistic entity. And I said, I think I want to do this. And I decided to do a choir festival in 1986. It was also the same year I started my doctorate at IU. And I thought, well, 
you know, maybe if I could find 75 kids that would like to sing in the city, that would be great. Turned out there were 204 that came to this festival. And when I auditioned the kids, I think maybe over half of them auditioned and wanted to sign up for a choir, a new experience. But then by that time, their brothers and sisters had heard about it and the music teachers had heard about it. So I started with, I think, 212 kids the very first year, which was phenomenal. And for the first year and a half, we resided at the Unitarian Church. But since I was also teaching at Butler uh, in the middle of the second year, we moved the choir onto the Butler University campus because it was a great laboratory for future music educators to see great teaching and young people doing great things, but also it gave us a better facility. So the choir grew to 375 the next year and then 450. It was kind of unheard of until um, before the pandemic, I think, the choir was serving nearly 5,000 kids. And Man. 1,200 kids coming to choir rehearsals regularly. Wow. And the program expanded from what was termed a children's choir, which would be nine-year-olds through 16-year-olds, but roughly fourth through ninth grade. They didn't want to quit singing, so we added a high school choir. And then we had younger brothers and sisters that wanted to sing, so we started an early childhood music program first with Kinder Music and now with First Steps, which is a Kodai-based program. And then there wasn't anything for second and third graders, so we created a preparatory program. So now there are, I think, about 14 choirs in all. Um, they're spread over all around the Indianapolis region in all of the counties that surrounding the Donut counties, they call them. Yep. They all, the Anderson Area Children's Choir is also part of the organization, also the Columbus, Indiana Children's Choirs are part of ICC. So it's, it's spread uh, throughout central Indiana and um, serving lots and lots of kids. This thing became a heck of a lot bigger than you are. It sure did. <laughs> in a hurry. You're a specialist in boys changing voices. When we think of boys changing voices, we don't think of anything that would be, shall we say, dulcet. Uh, what the custom had been for a long, long time is that when a boy's voice started to mature, what we call mutation, when they were changing from a young soprano boy to either a tenor or bass, the, the feeling back in the 1700s, 1800s was that you should let the voice rest. A perfect example of that is the Vienna Boy Choir. You know, you might have remembered that Littlest Angel movie that was there a long time ago where the boy tries to hide his voice from changing it's starting to crack and so on. It was traditional in European boy choirs and even in the early American boy choirs to just boot boys out when their voice started to change. Hmm. Well, I had um, 86 kids in each choir and I had boys, many of which were in the seventh, eighth and ninth grade. Well, of course, many of their voices were starting to change and I had no idea how to deal with that. So with a lot of uh, research, a lot of in, uh, inquisition about various techniques, various forms of classification, etc. Um, I found out that if a boy keeps singing in his high voice, that the break in the middle eventually disappears. And I, after a few years, I found out that boys who kept singing in their high voice, when they left me in the ninth grade, could actually sing soprano, alto, tenor, or bass. That you don't have to lose your high voice. You can keep it. Huh. If you if you do the right things, and that was very revolutionary at the time, so um, I've kind of been known for that. It's been in a lot of national publications. I did a teaching DVD that's 
widespread. And now I think it's pretty much generally understood that when a boy's voice is changing is when they need the help the most. Mm-hmm. And that it's frustrating. The voice will crack. It's undependable. It, it'll lose some notes on the top. The middle voice is very difficult to speak because it's between the upper voice and the lower voice. Consequently, uh, boys get discouraged. And I still had parents, even near the end, say, well, I don't know if my, my son can sing next year because his voice is getting ready to break or his voice is getting ready to change. Well, the truth is they can. And if they're mentored properly, they go right through that process, and then they have an extremely wide range, usually of three octaves. So this process sounds very much like the same process that uh, young athletes go through, uh, practice and mentorship and instruction and ability to change. Yeah, it's amazing. And of course, the voice isn't outside the body, it's inside the body. Yeah. But as the body changes, the voice changes. And in fact, uh, the thing we call an Adam's apple, that uh, cartilage that's right, uh, the hyoid one that's right in the front of your throat, right. that's called the larynx. And in the larynx are two vocal folds. Well, as boys and girls grow, those lengthen and thicken. And it's during that process, that adolescent process, that is most difficult because the coordination of the folds is difficult. But uh, if there's the correct kind of mentoring through that process, the result is great. So I'm assuming you did a lot of uh, study of uh, throat and lung anatomy? Not so much lung anatomy, but I did a lot of study on throat anatomy. Yeah. I still can't even believe this, but when I was doing this DVD, um, I wanted to know what the throat looked like inside. And they do a a laryngoscopy where they get camera down your throat. Well, I was able to get three parents, sets of parents, one with a parents of a boy that had an unchanged voice, one with a changing voice, and one with a fully changed voice, got them to go to their doctor and get a prescription. And uh, I got my publisher to pay $600 per boy. And we went into the, the, the hospital, had their nose anesthetized, had a camera put down, and I had each of them vocalize so I could see what was happening with the vocal folds as they grew and expanded. It was pretty interesting research the founder of the Indianapolis Children's Choir. Boy, that's been in existence for uh, going on 40 years almost now. It'll be 35 next year. Yikes. 1986. You also have founded, among other things, the ARCI Sao Paulo Children's Honor Choir and numerous statewide school and youth choirs all around Indiana. You're a hardworking guy. Yeah, I basically had four jobs uh, most of my life. I taught full-time as head of the choral department at Butler University. Children's choir thing erupted in front of me like I couldn't believe, so it was full-time. And then I ended up doing lots of guest conducting. I've taught and conducted in nearly every state in the United States and on every continent, with the exception of Antarctica. And in addition to that, um, because of my interest in children's choirs and the fact that there was very little repertoire available when I started. Um, I have two choral series, so I publish uh, through Hal Leonard Music and with Colavoce many pieces every year. I think I probably have now 1,200, 1,400 titles of choral arrangements for young voices. So that's kept me busy. That was my fourth job. (laughs) Maybe the biggest audience ever to hear work by you 
was in 2012. You arranged the national anthem performance by Kelly Clarkson with the Indianapolis Children's Choir at Super Bowl 46. <laughs> That's an interesting story, I'll tell you. When we knew the Super Bowl was coming to Indianapolis, we kept contacting the local committee and saying, hey, if there's any way the children's choir could be involved, we'd be interested. Uh, and we didn't hear anything. We didn't hear anything. It got to be about Christmas time. And a friend of mine who conducts the Miami Children's Choir had sung at their Super Bowl. And so I was down there. I talked to him. And he said, well, you know, you're probably not going to get a call from the NFL until maybe right before. And lo and behold, it was a week and a half before the Super Bowl. Our managing director got a phone call that said, we'd like to know if the choir might be available on such and such date. We can't tell you what it is, and you have to sign a non-disclosure privacy agreement that you'd be willing to do it. Your kids would be willing, uh, available on these three days, et cetera, et cetera. Well, of course, we kind of knew it was the Super Bowl. We didn't know what with the Super Bowl. It was pregame or activity or whatever. So we said, sure, we'd do that. Then uh, we weren't allowed to say anything to anyone. In another two or three days, they told us, well, you're going to be singing the national anthem with Kelly Clarkson. Great. So I'm kind of on pins and needles knowing how I'm going to get the kids prepared and what are the details of it. Well, it turned out it was the week prior. Yeah. I get a call, and it's from the manager of Kelly Clarkson's um, studio. And he said, hey, I understand we're going to do the national anthem. And I said, yes, I, I'm anxious about that. I said, uh, what do you want the kids to sing? And he said, well, that's up to us to write it. And I said, really? <laughs> write it? And he said, yeah, do you want to do it or I, do I want to do it? And I said, well, I know the kids' voices and I know their capabilities, so why don't I get, get on it and I'll write something. So that Monday, I, I wrote a four-part accompaniment with obligato and so on with Kelly Clarkson singing the anthem. I sent it to him Tuesday. So it took me one day to write it. I didn't hear anything. I didn't hear anything. I didn't hear anything. So <laughs> now Friday, I call him back and I say, well, how was it? Is that going to work for you guys or what? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, it'll work great. It, we love it. It's great. But, you know, Kelly doesn't sing the national anthem in three, four times. I said, oh, really? Uh-oh. Well, how does she sing it? And they said, well, if you get on on the internet and look at the NBA finals. She sang it a year ago and just use that as a guideline. So over the weekend, now this would be one weekend before the Super Bowl. Yep. I'm listening to it and going, oh my gosh, this measures in five, four, this measures in four, four, this measures in six, this measures oh in four. Because she sustains certain notes and lengthens certain phrases, etc. So I spent the weekend and I sent it to them on Sunday night, I think. They said, Okay, well, we'll be there on Monday to record it. <laughs> well, wait a minute. I haven't even taught it. The kids have never seen it. And they said, well, we need to record it because how this works is when, they, when you're doing a national or international event like that, they pre-record it so they know exactly how many seconds it's going to take. Even though the kids sang live in Lucas Oil, it was still piped out their live music with this recorded music synced together and sent out to the 130. No kidding. Days. Yeah. <laughs> It's complicated. So the only thing is I couldn't tell the kids what we were recording. I wasn't allowed to disclose it. <laughs> so we contacted the parents and said, when you bring your kid to rehearsal tonight on Monday night, this is now, of course, less than a week before the, the Super Bowl, you have to sign a non-disclosure that 
as you'll let your kid into the room, but they can't talk about what we're doing. It's, it has to be private. So the kids walked into the room. I handed them the music and they were coming in, setting up recording equipment. They came from LA, these engineers, they were setting microphones up all over the place. Okay. Now um, we've got to get this music learned kids. And so we're playing the music on the piano and it's in four parts and we kind of got it done. I said, now I can't really tell you why we're learning this, but we're going to sing it sort of in a style, kind of like, kind of like Kelly Clarkson. So I'm going to play <laughs> this YouTube video for you. See how she uses her voice this way and like that, like that. Yeah, they got all that. So they got it learned. And now it's, we've been in the rehearsal maybe 15 minutes. And uh, I said, well, now we have to get it memorized because when we record this, we can't be flipping pages. So very quickly, these kids, I couldn't believe it. They got it memorized. And this is difficult four-part writing. They got it memorized. Okay, now singing it from memory. Okay, that's great. Now we have to sing it without the piano, a cappella. Okay, great. So we're now like 25 minutes, 30 minutes into the rehearsal time, and they're able to sing it a cappella. But now I put on a headset. I can hear Kelly Clarkson's recording in my headset, but the kids can't hear it. They can't hear the piano, and they don't have music to look at. And I say, okay, when I wave my hands, now you have to start singing this. Oh, ah, <laughs> they're just, they're in it. And we, I could not believe it. They sang all the way through it. They came, came with me. We stopped. And everything was silent. And I looked at the engineers and I thought, damn, their, their equipment isn't working or something like that. And so I waited and I waited. It was like almost a minute. And they said, yeah, she likes it. It's great. We're, well, that's a wrap. And I said, what? <laughs> what? So Kelly Clarkson was listening. She, they somehow got a, a recording of it. She liked it. And they said, that's it. And I said, no, that's not it. We have to fix a few more things. So I think it was 40 or 45 minutes after the beginning of the rehearsal, they packed up and left. And that was the recording that went out to 130 million people. 130 million. <laughs> what an audience. And hey, speaking of voices, once again, I want to remind the listeners that if it sounds like we, the both of us are talking in a coffee can, it's because we're doing this via Zoom. We're doing it in my garage office. Uh, uh, the car is right behind me. The washing machine is to my left. That's our studio, Henry. Henry Leck, who was the founder of the Indianapolis Children's Choir and a man who has worked with children, young and older children, for years and years and years. In 2016, Henry won the Nouveau Lifetime Achievement Award. Their little tagline for your award was, quote, 30 years, thousands of kids served. In 2014, you were a judge at the World Choir Games in Riga, Latvia. Yes. World <laughs> Choir Games, what is that? Well, it's, it kind of was modeled after the Olympics a long time ago. There's a company called Interkultur, which is in Germany, and they sponsor every other year a world competition of choirs. The very best choirs from all the countries around the world um, that want to compete do. And they come together and there are various classifications. You can compete in sacred a cappella music or in folk music or in jazz or in uh, contemporary music, etc. And uh, I was honored to be invited, I think, uh, one of maybe three Americans to be on the jury. And um, it was two weeks of listening to choirs, awarding medals, and, uh, and rating them and finding the best choirs in the world. 
What are you looking for when it's a competition? Is it uh, these people know how to keep on key or is it way beyond that? Well, it's, it's a lot of things. Most okay. of the judges sit there with a tuning fork to make sure that the choir stay in the correct key and is in tune. And uh -huh. most uh, directors are sitting there either with uh, their own sense of tempo or a, a metronome checking tempi. So the first responsibility of the choir is to be absolutely correct uh, as, as and, and loyal to the score. But once that's accomplished, there are a zillion other things. You're listening to tone, you're listening for expression, you're listening for phrasing, listening for cutoffs and entrances, for balance between voices. There are a whole slew of things that you listen for that uh, make a choir great. Now, here's a question that I have. We talked about boys changing voices. Don't girls' voices change? That's an excellent question. I'm glad you ask. This is not a good analogy, but if you were to look at a family of string instruments and say all the children sing like violins, well, some of the girls stay as violins and some became viola, become violas, but the boys move from violins to cellos and basses. <laughs> and so it's the length and thickness of their vocal folds. The question you ask is a really good one because girls' voices do change, but they don't change by the octave like some boys' voices do. They simply lose some upper notes, some gain some lower notes, and they take on a, a, a different kind of timbre. You know, all these titles we use for the, the female voice like coloratura and mezzo and dramatic and lyric and all of those are terms that apply to the color of the voice or the character of the voice once it's fully changed. The notes that a girl sings when she becomes a woman aren't all that different, but the character of the sound is. What's important here to know, however, is that while a girl's voice is changing, there are certain things that they will experience. Many girls experience very strong breathiness, sort of a hootiness, sort of a lack of clarity. In fact, sometimes girls get discouraged. Maybe they sang wonderful solos as a little girl, and while their voice is changing, all of a sudden it's not as good as it once was. And they think, well, maybe I'm not cut out to be a singer, or maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was. But turns out that's a temporary condition. After that mutation has completed itself, it's almost like a butterfly emerging. They come out uh, in the character of, of another voice. I think I should mention, though, that sometimes a woman's voice range is quite wide. When I first met my wife, my, before I met, as I met her as a new person, she was singing contralto in a faculty voice quartet. Later on, we went to the University of Colorado to study the graduate study, and she walked into her voice teacher's studio, and they vocalized, and the teacher said, oh, my goodness, you're a coloratura. <laughs> <laughs> so then she sang coloratura things for a while, and then as she got older, she became a mezzo. So oftentimes, a woman's voice will also have a very wide range with those two registers, head and chest voice, even like as the male's voice. But the, they'll find that certain parts of the voice are more fulfilling to sing or have maybe more character to the sound. And then they'll focus on that region of the voice. Henry Leck, a longtime music man, the founder of the Indianapolis Children's Choir, now a painter whose works are hanging and hopefully we'll be able to see him soonly over at the Bloomington Arts Alliance Art Beat Gallery right. in the College Mall. Henry, thanks so much for being on Big Talk. It's been my pleasure to meet with, I hope I can meet you personally someday soon. <laughs> of anybody. <laughs> Henry, thanks a lot. Great to chat with you, thanks much.